Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I'm your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the architecture and design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for disruption and radically changing the architecture industry through tech-first innovation. With this podcast, I am hoping to improve the industry that I am so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work with their clients and in turn, how their clients view us. It's my goal to showcase all of these experiences, good and bad. Was it the architect or the client or somewhere in between? Through shared experiences, stories, and projects, my hope is that we can improve our profession. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. Today we are recording at the studios of A Shared Universe in Homedale, New Jersey. We're actually at the amazing Bell Works building that my firm Mancini Duffy played a major role in the design and redevelopment here for many, many years. It's great to be here. I love the energy in this building. It's truly a special, special place. We get to look out onto the, the plaza portion of it. Today I would like to welcome Pedro Larrero. As my special guest to the Anti-Architect podcast, Pedro is the president and an owner of Nomad Framing based in Cranberry, New Jersey. He is a husband and father of two amazing children, Chloe and Blake, who my kids are very fond of. For almost three decades, Nomad Framing has developed into one of the leading framing contractors in the United States, specializing in residential and commercial wood and light gauge steel frame construction, throughout New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and all basically through the, the Northeast area. In 2020, Pedro was also appointed the president of the National Framers Council. I wanted to have Pedro on for a number of reasons, and I'll let him tell his story. He and I are in an organization called YPO, the Young Presidents Organization. For those that don't know of it, please check it out. It's a special organization and an honor to be part of it. YPO is how we met, and he and, and he and I immediately hit it off. Pedro's professional life is like a story you read in, read about or a movie that you'd watch, starting at an entry-level position and working his way through mostly every portion with the company. It's like the guy who goes from stocking the shelves to owning the entire company. Pedro is all about character, his endless appetite for learning, and hard work. Pedro, I'm honored to have you as my guest today. Well, thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Um, doesn't sound like it's me, so but thank you. <laughs> so our audience would love to get in, to know you a little bit better. Uh, let's begin with a bit of your story. Uh, where did you grow up and uh, how did you come to America? Okay. Um, so it starts in, in Portugal. Um, I'm from a coastal town near uh, Aveiro, uh, which is kind of in the central portion of Portugal. I uh, came to the U.S. when I was nine years old, um, 1989, that's when I came. And uh, my mother was already divorced then, so it was my sister, myself, and my mother when we came over. I was nine, my sister was 11. And uh, we immigrated to the Ironbound section in Newark, like almost every single Portuguese person does. <laughs> um, and uh, that's kind of how it all started. So uh, for me, um, my... Uh, call it career, uh, really started around 13 years of age um, when I got, came home one day and I told my mom I got a job. Um, being the quote-unquote man of the house, 
uh, I felt like I needed to do something to help out. Uh, my mom was working, you know, seven days a week, uh, endless hours uh, to put food on the table. My sister at the time, she was, I guess, 15. So she got a job and I figured I, I can't just sit home while the ladies go to work. So uh, at 13, I got a job and it was uh, it was a lot of fun. I was, uh, I was a stock boy uh, for a fruit and vegetable uh, shop around Ferry Street um, in, um, in Newark in the armor section of Newark. Um, it was called Johnny's Fruits and Vegetables. And the the cool thing about that job that planted a seed, uh, which we'll get back to later, um, and I haven't thought about this in a while, so that planted a seed was the owner of the place, uh, Americo, um, really had a piece of the American dream. So Americo also had immigrated to the country. He worked for Johnny, which owned the place for, I don't know, I think it was like 60 years. That place was 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 open for almost 100 years. So um, he worked for Johnny and when Johnny retired, uh, Americo took over the business. So it was kind of, you know, one of those uh, American dream stories. He he started working for the guy and then ended up being the, the owner of the organization. Um, which again, a little bit similar to, to my story, but it, it gave me the context that um, there, is, there is an opportunity uh, for people that do wanna work hard uh, to be able to move up in the world and be able to uh, take over uh, and take control of their destiny. So that was that, um, fast forward a little bit, um, uh, graduated high school, uh, was looking to take a year off uh, from school, uh, met a guy over the summer that offered, hey, why don't you come work for us? You know, we got a really good construction company. Um, at the time, I was planning on going to school to uh, for architectural design, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I said, you know what, let me go get some hands-on experience and, uh, and see what comes out of it. And I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed working in the field. I enjoyed working with my hands. I enjoyed seeing the the product at the end of the day, right? You get there at the beginning of the day, there's a slab, and then by the time you go home, there's half a home and then two days later, the home is done. And then a few months later, people are moving in. So again, um, having a, a piece um, of the American dream, right? Making, making a difference. Um, so I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed working. And then the other part was, you know, as a young kid, 18 years old, I was making some pretty decent money uh, working construction and why would I wanna to go to school now? And uh, I ended up going to school for a few semesters uh, at night. It didn't work out, and uh, I dropped out. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I dropped out after two semesters and uh, and stuck with the company, which was all tech back then. Um, and um, let me pause there. You mean you can just continue, or any questions? Or yeah, um, I'll, I'll throw in a couple. I'll throw in a question here. So um, just to kind of go back into the kind of why you came here, and then we'll get we'll start getting into the whole uh, okay. the career stuff. So um, okay, here we go. So what were the what were the reasons behind you and your family coming to the US? So then? the reasons were uh obviously for better opportunity, right? So my um my parents got divorced when I was 8. Um you know, we weren't uh financially stable uh and to the point that once we got divorced, it was even worse where, you know, if it weren't for my uh my mother's side of the family, she has six sisters and two brothers. Uh, if it wasn't for uh, for that side of the family really assisting us, we probably would have been homeless. 
um, even even where we were before we got before they got divorced. I mean, I grew up in a house where I had an outhouse until I was uh, six years old, and it's not like I lived in this remote place in Portugal. Uh, it is not, and it was not a third world country back then. It's just that we were we were we were poor. Um, so you know, uh, the reason why we moved here was um, you know I guess it, it was it was the need for a better opportunity. Uh, my mother had one of her sisters that already lived here in the States. Um, and then that's that's how we came here. She, uh, she said, hey, well, why don't you guys come over? We'll get you, we'll help you get set up and, and so on and so forth. So that's that's what was the trigger. So you moved to Newark um, in the Ironbound section, which ironically now is like a booming section of Newark, right? Yep. Uh, totally redeveloped and uh, high end, which is kind of funny. Um, you know, when you were, when you were a, a, a kid, was there any were there any teachers or anything when you were in school that really you know kind of stood out that may have directed you into the construction field or in the architecture world how did that kind of or was it just something that you saw and, and just because you started working it was something that you wanted to do so i can't remember any like one point that really stands out um i, I can remember being in fifth grade and and the question, you know, was, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? And for whatever reason, you know, even in fifth grade, I said, I want to be an architect. And that was kind of my presentation as a fifth grader. I don't remember how I got there, um, but I do remember that, you know, being, you know, kind of one of those highlights. Um, as far as teachers, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's funny, but um, we had, uh, we had a, a geometry teacher um, and he wasn't that great of a teacher, um, <laughs> but... He he used to really spend a lot of time around the Pythagorean theorem, um, like a lot of time. That that's the only thing I remember from that class. Um, and we used to joke all the time. You know, anytime he asks a question, just answer Pythagorean theorem, and that's the answer. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I didn't think I was ever going to use the Pythagorean theorem ever in my life. Um, but lo and behold, when I did start working construction, that's one of the main things you need to do when you when you get on a slab to start laying out the building, you need to square it up. How do you square <laughs> it up? Use the Pythagorean theorem. That's fine. Uh, so it became one of those tools that I used daily. Um, and it was just ironic because we used to joke with the guy all the time. But, That's great. Uh, but no, there's there's not that one professor or that one uh, moment in my life that it was like, aha, this is why I want to become an architect or this is what it is. Um, and again, I, I think, you know, ultimately because of uh, our financial situation, there wasn't much time to think about all these great things and these dreams. It was more about, hey, um, what can I do now to help, you know, put food on the table? And that's what I'm going to do right. and kind of focus on that. So um, there was never, you know, the extracurricular activities after school because we went because I went to work. Uh, never really played team sports because I went to work. <laughs> um, so it was, there wasn't enough time to really uh, ponder on, you know, do I want to be an astronaut or do I want to be a doctor? <laughs> it was, uh, I need to get to work. Um, right. So it kind of just developed. And once I did um, start my job in the field in construction, I really, I just fell in love with it. I, I fell in love with, with, with uh, again, being outdoors and, and working uh, with my hands and, and physically building something. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It's so it's such a great story. It's super inspirational. I, so so let's let's talk a little bit about your 
early career. You joined Nomad Framing when you're 18 years old. I think it was called Alltech at the time, but essentially it's the same company, yep. right? Um, it's rare to find anyone these days that's been in the same job for their entire career thus far. Um, trust me, I know that for sure. Uh, people like to move around a lot. So take a little bit of time and kind of explain the evolution of your your career there. You start and kind of go through the the jobs and kind of how you do it. Because as I said in the in the introduction, you're now one of the owners of the company. I mean, you legitimately started there and worked your way through with your hands, essentially, to to build this company with, you know, your partners, which is it's an extremely inspirational story. Thank you for that. Um, so, yes, it started at 18 um, in September, uh, right after the summer. I uh, started over there, um, and it was at the time Alltech was really focused on building uh, single family uh, single family homes and townhomes. So our clients were you know Kehavnanian, Toll Brothers, Lennar, you know those kind of clients that did those uh, big track homes. Um, so I walked into a company that was that was thriving, that was growing, um, and at the time I think we had I don't know probably. 60, 70 employees and plus the subcontractors. And so we were building probably, or framing probably, I don't know, two to 3,000 units per year. Um, so it was a pretty large large organization by the time I, I, I walked in. So the, a lot of moving parts. It wasn't like it was a small, um, you know, mom and pop or, or organization where or a company where you go in and you're one of five and, you know, you're kind of, you know, just, the labor, right? Um, but within the project, yes, that's what I was. I was just a laborer. Um, and I recall one of my first days on site, uh, the, the foreman asked me to go pick up some some two by six because uh, we were inside a house, you know, just getting it ready for inspection. Um, about an hour later, I come back and I said, I can't find any because everything I measured with my measuring tape was <laughs> either three and a half or five and a half inches wide. Nothing was six inches wide. So I couldn't find any. So that was kind of my first lesson. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the other lesson I learned uh, very early on was never to grab thermofiber, which is uh, also called rock wool, which is this uh, insulation, this fiberglass insulation, not not um, like the the bat insulation you're used to seeing in the uh, in the cavity of a wall. Uh, it's really a, a fireproof insulation, like a lot of fiberglass. Um, and my job was to go stuff an attic. Um, there was a firewall in the attic, so I had to stuff it just to get it fireproofed. And um, it was again a hot summer day um, back then. Safety wasn't what it is today, so I didn't even have my T-shirt on because I was working on my tan. I was 18. Um, <laughs> I put the rock wool or thermofiber on my back, crawled oh. up into the attic, which by in the attic at that point, in that nice summer hot day, it was uh, probably 200 degrees. At least it felt like it was. Um, and immediately uh, was you know in pain because that stuff just gets on your skin and then I started scratching you know I had to go home couldn't take a cold shower and it was pain I mean painful um but it, but again I learned right so you kind of learn um these lessons these daily lessons and that's kind of your compounding interest um and that's how I started uh I just again because I enjoyed it um and I guess by nature I just enjoy learning. So every day I wanted to learn something new. So I kept learning and learning. So I became a carpenter a few, uh, probably about in nine months later, I became a carpenter. Uh, my responsibilities kind of, you know, changed and grew. 
Um, two years in, I was an assistant project foreman, um, running a couple of jobs. And then I had an opportunity, um, probably my third year with the company, third or fourth year at the company. Um, there was a small project in Long Branch. Um, it was affordable housing. It was these uh, duplexes uh, right on uh, Fifth Avenue um, in Long Branch, which is maybe, I guess, five blocks away from, from the ocean. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, these uh, duplexes were very simple. And again, the company was growing. They needed somebody to kind of step up. And, you know, one of the senior PMs said, hey, you think you can handle this? I'm like, of course. I, I didn't think I could handle it, but I said yes. Um, so I had an opportunity and I, I went out there. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of, I, I guess, learning experiences, which we like to call them mistakes too. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of learning experiences, but um, it was a great project. The, 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 the customer... Um, you know, uh, at the time had this project manager, um, and she was, she was a fantastic woman. Um, she didn't know much about construction. Uh, she was running this project and she was just a, a nice Cuban, uh, lady. Um, and we kind of grew together. We kind of grew together because she was trying to manage this business and she was kind of doing it for family. She was also kind of just pushed into the situation. I was pushed into the situation. So both of us kind of just managed through um, <laughs> and got got those buildings built. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was a great experience. I, I, I enjoyed it um, and I learned a lot. And from there, um, I then took on a few other projects that kind of grew from there, right? And I was able to uh, be exposed to some other pretty large projects um, and uh, kind of uh, put those notches on my belt. So you go from the guy that's putting insulation on your back, no shirt on, yep. uh, to you know carpenter to now running projects. And then so what, what are the next steps? So what about how far in, in terms of years are you at this point? So I remember that period, it was right around 9-11. Um, so if I started in... Uh, 98, 90, yeah, started in 98. So we're now in 2011. Okay. Um, that's when I, now that's when I was a foreman. I was actually doing a project um, uh, in West New York, right right over the river. Right. Uh, so I was managing between finishing that project and doing a project out in uh, South Amboy, also right on the bay. Um, so I do remember that period as, that's kind of when I was starting to take the training wheels off and, and go on my own. Um, and my first big project, I would say, was was in uh, in South Amboy. Uh, it was a pretty big community we did right there on the bay. Um, but that's pretty much when it was, I guess, 2011. Okay. And then, so when does this start a trans start to transition into the management side of things? And you know, knowing you a bit, you know, you're you're the guy that also goes and finds the clients and finds the jobs and all that sort of stuff. When does that transition begin to happen? And and how does that happen for you? So that happened in two thousand and six, seven, two thousand seven, early two thousand seven. So, um, um, so and I guess it was two thousand one, not two thousand one. Two thousand one. Yeah, yeah. yeah, correction there. So it's about around two thousand six, end two thousand six, and two thousand seven. So at this point, I had another five years of project management under my belt. I've delivered um, some significant projects by then. Um, and I was really kind of growing up the ranks as one of the key key project managers in the company. Um, in 2007, uh, there was an attempted coup at, at Alltech. So, um, <laughs> yeah. 
uh, it was fun, fun times. The f four of the vice presidents and a bunch of the senior guys decided to get together and leave on the same day um, to go open up a new company to kind of steal the business away from uh, from from Jalsa, which is the uh, founder of Valtech and owner of Valtech. So um, that point, it was it was an opportunity, right? So a bunch of these guys left. They had actually asked me to leave with them. Um, and I almost did. So um, I was, so the, the premise was, hey, we're all gonna leave. There's this job posting. We're all gonna go answer this job posting and we're gonna go work for this company. Everything's set up. We're gonna take over all these projects. Alltech's gonna go out of business and we're gonna be, you know, Alltech 2.0 over there. <laughs> um, so on the on D-Day, we were supposed to go and, uh, you know, go to Alltech and hand in our trucks and our company phones, which back then were just big Motorola bricks, um, and, uh, and then go, and to this new, uh, this new job for uh, to fill out the application and so on and so forth. So on the way there, um, I, I felt that you know at this point I had been working for Jalsa. Uh, he's my partner. Uh, more than that, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, and I, I felt like I just needed to go and get his side of the story. Right? These guys were claiming anything under the sun uh, about Jalsa, and I just wanted to get his side of the story. Um, so I stopped by the office and, you know, I spoke to him and an hour in having a conversation, I changed my mind. I was like, no, I'm not going there. I'm, I'm sticking it out with him. I'm going to stay here. Um, what happened after that was a very difficult period. Um, but again, also rewarding, right? At the end of, uh, at the end of hard work, there's, there was definitely a big reward, but, um, it turned into, we, we at the time had about 100 employees, 30 of which left on the same day. Wow. Um, those 30, in, like I said, included the four vice presidents, the senior project manager. So all the senior management pretty much left on the same day. Um, and we we had a lot of work. I mean, this was kind of right before the recession. So right. this was at the peak of the, high, of the, of the housing okay. market. Uh, and we were doing all those projects. We probably had 30 something active projects at the time. Um, each project we were framing five, six houses per week. So it was, you know, booming. Um, so it took a lot to keep the, the company, uh, 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 from derailing. And it definitely, it definitely was a long period, which I don't know if I was to guess, it was probably a good nine months of 18 hour workdays, not joking. It was, you know, getting up, uh, five o'clock in the morning, getting to the projects, um, making sure we got the project set up, talking to the customer, talking to the contractors, getting everything lined up for the day, um, then make it to the office by by two o'clock and then doing kind of the office duties in the afternoon, right? Getting the estimating done, getting the bids out the door, getting the litigation, because at that, at that point we were in litigation with all these guys that left because it definitely was a coup. Um, so, <laughs> and, and staying at the office until, you know, 11, 12, sometimes one o'clock in the morning and then rinse, repeat. And it took a long time um, for us to kind of get back, um, get back on track. But we did. We did not lose any projects. Uh, we kept going, and it was it was another big learning experience. Uh, yeah. I definitely had um, an opportunity, but I also stepped up to the opportunity, um, and it was uh, um, it, it it was a lot to take in. But I learned a lot from that experience. I can imagine. Yeah. So that that's. 
that's pretty extraordinary. So all these guys leave and then you essentially raise your hand and say, no, I, I got it. And that's basically what got you to where you are today. Um, I guess just before we go into a little bit about the the business itself, well, well, we can do that. Um, so Jalsa, you mentioned as your partner. Yep. So, um, and, you know, he seems very loyal to you and you're loyal to him, which is obviously, you know, telling that story is, is the reason behind that. Just tell us a little bit about the business itself right now, kind of what you do. And, and I, I guess, so, so, you know, what does a framing contractor do? And it's weird that me as an architect is asking this question. Um, you think I would know that, but when I visited some of your mega project sites, and when I tell you these are some huge, huge housing projects, um, it's way more than framing. I mean, I legitimately thought you guys came in, you did the walls and you walked away, but explain a little bit about the business and kind of what, what a framing contractor does. Yep. So um, I'll start by saying we were uh, predominantly a single family and townhouse framer. And then in, in 07, 08, 09, due to a recession, we kind of pivoted and went into the apartment framing to multifamily. So our space now is in multifamily, not in single family. Um, it is vastly different than the single family market. So what we do now um, and what we do as a framing contractor, um, we're actually a, a turnkey framer. So turnkey framing meaning that we'll provide all the products that we install. Um, and we'll bring all the lumber, all the floor components, roof components, sheathing, so on and so forth. But in essence, as a framer, we build the shell of the building um, in in commercial construction. It's also called a superstructure. Um, but we take it from concrete, we build all the walls, all the floors, up to the roof, sheath it, install the windows, all the exterior doors. So basically on the exterior of the building, we get it ready for the cladding and the roofing. Um, and then on the interior of the building, we get it ready for the mechanicals. So, you know, as a framer, we do need to know a little bit about every trade. We need to know what the electrician needs and where he needs it and why he needs it. We need to know what the plumber needs and where he needs it and why he needs it. Uh, the fire sprinkler guy, the even the low voltage guy, the drywaller, we need to know what he needs and where he needs it. Uh, so it, we really need to have a little bit of expertise in almost every part of the building, inside and out, um, so we can get it ready for them. Um, so in essence, yes, we, we deliver the shell, get it ready for cladding, roofing, and for mechanicals inside. And then the way I like to say it, after the mechanicals are done hacking through the building um, <laughs> and tearing our framing apart, we have to go back in and clean it up and get it ready for frame inspection. And that's when we you know, make sure that all the fire blocking is in, all the, you know, the point loads are in, um, and uh, you know, all that stuff is ready to go before, yeah, before I, it gets covered up. What I was amazed by was you know, your knowledge of structure too and understanding how things come together. It's way more than just kind of putting up some walls uh, along the way. I mean, you really have to understand what's load bearing, what's not, especially in that kind of construction framing. It's it's very impressive to to see. And so, you know, I think your point of view, having worked in in all the different you know aspects of your company, you know, as you've become really a, a leader and owner of the company, tell us a little bit about your the company culture and the safety first approach that you guys have because I think it's unique for a construction company. Yeah, so um, you know, safety safety has always been you know first and foremost for us, and I know a lot of companies do say that. A lot of companies, you know, 
um, try to promote the safety first, but I think for us, we actually put our money where our mouth is. Um, we're probably one of the very few companies that invest as much as we do in safety. Um, we we have our own um, OSHA trainer in-house, so they, which is uh, certified in OSHA 500 and, and 501 and 600. Um, so we have our own uh, OSHA, OSHA certified guy in-house. We do hire a third, par- third party uh, safety inspector to come in and do uh, audits on all of our projects. Um, nobody does that. Um, all, all, of our, all of our project managers, actually, I'm sorry, all of our employees are, are certified in, uh, in um, OSHA 10 and OSHA, OSHA 30 for our project managers. Um, they're CPR trained. They, uh, um, they have all the tools they need as far as when it comes to um, the uh, retractables and you know, all the good stuff. Uh, the other thing that we do as well is all of our project managers have um, a defibrillator in their trucks. Um, again, this is something that we do think about, you know, what is the one thing that we're going to need in case of emergency? Um, so again, there's a lot of little things that we do for safety, um, but every single one of our projects starts with a safety huddle at the beginning of the day. Um, beginning of the day, the first thing we do is we get together um, near, our, near our office, our field office, um, and we have a safety huddle, which we talk about what are the hazards that we need to prepare for today? What are the things that are going to be happening today that we need to make sure that we check the box, that we that we verify that we're good to go? Uh, and it could be, hey, today we're going to be swinging a roof on the west part of the building, so let's make sure we have you know our um, our zone you know uh, taped off. Let's let's go up on on the roof, make sure that we have all the scaffolding in place, all the safety rails in place, and who's going to be responsible to uh, monitor the guys while they're up there and make sure that everybody's tied off. Um, who's verifying the machine and so on and so forth. Or it could be, hey, um, we the the temperature is pretty cold. There's got to be some ice around the, around the project. Who's going to go around and make sure that we, we verify where there is ice, just so when somebody doesn't have a you know nasty no. slip and fall. You know, so it could be anything from you know the catastrophic you know falling from a roof to you may slip you know break your foot. It's it's still an accident, right? It's still an incident. It's still a lost uh, lo- lost time. Um, so all those things we do put them put them into perspective and put them front and center every morning. Yeah. Do you think do you think your perspective coming from having worked in all the different parts, you know, is is part of why safety is so important? You've seen kind of what slipping and falling does, and yeah. you know, it's a, I, I never really thought about that. But do you think that's part of it? Yeah, I I think it it it's definitely some of it. Um, it's definitely some of it. Uh, the other part is, you know, yeah, being out in the field and seeing what could happen. Uh, I've witnessed a few accidents in my in my my career. Um, you know, things that you really can't unsee. And then uh, the other the other part is now sitting and looking at your insurance costs and looking at all those things, right? So you, you need to mitigate the risk for for both those things, right? So um, you don't need to have that phone call at the end of the day say, you know, hey. Your father's not going to ho- coming home today, or you know your husband is in the hospital today. Um, I don't want to have those conversations. You know, I do not want to have those conversations. Um, and the the families of the 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 people that work for us don't want to get that phone call either, right? So we need to do everything we can in our in our power to, to avoid that. Um, and then on the other side, it's the business the business part of it. Um, insurance costs are one of the biggest costs that we have um, as contractors. So anything we do to mitigate both those things, um, you know, we will do. Yeah, makes makes perfect sense. So, um, just shifting gears to to YPO a bit. Um, how did you come to find out about YPO? 
Um, it starts <clears throat> in Mongolia. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yes. So, uh, Jalsa, uh, Europe Shiro, my, uh, my mentor, business partner, and a really great friend. Um, we have an amazing relationship. Um, so he runs a, uh, a lodge in the Gobi Desert of Mongolia called Three Camel Lodge. And he has this company, Three, three uh, Nomadic Expeditions. They're a tour operator. They, uh, they do tours out in, uh, Bhutan, Tibet, Mongolia, India, that part of the world. So he was interviewing for um, a COO position for the Nomadic Expeditions Mongolia office. And he was interviewing this guy that kept saying, yeah, I'm YPO and I'm this and that, and YPO this and YPO that. And he ended up not hiring the guy, but he said, one thing I definitely got from it is that you should definitely look into this YPO thing. I said, okay. So I uh, immediately went online. Um, looked it up, seemed interesting. I filled it out, filled out the application, sent it in, not really knowing anything about YPO. Um, and that's really how it started, <laughs> just by, by again, uh, a lot of my life has been about uh, sheer luck, I guess, or, or <laughs> sheer chance. Uh, that's what it was. That, that's how I got involved with YPO. What do you think that YPO has done for you? Because I, I know what it's done for me, uh, you know, as a business leader, as a husband, as a father, and overall citizen, you know, what, what, what do you think it's done for you? I don't think we have enough time to cover that today. <laughs> um, no, I mean, in all honesty, and I, I say this often, but YPO has made me a different person. YPO has changed me um, as, as a person, um, as a leader, uh, as a business leader, or, you know, and, and again, at home, uh, just all around, uh, the value I've gotten on YPO is is infinite, um, and you know uh, our business grew about a hundred percent since I joined YPO. Um, it did not grow hundred percent because of YPO, but YPO gave me the tools um, to manage to not let the train derail. Um, during that rapid growth, if it wasn't for YPO and all the support and uh, everything I learned from YPO, um, the train probably would have derailed. Yeah. Um, and you know, for a guy like me that uh, had a very short stint in, uh, in in college or you know second education, um, I didn't I didn't have all those tools. So um, you know, I got I guess my MBA um, from being involved with YPO. Um, you know, we, we run a you know pretty large organization, um, and I barely have a high school diploma. Uh, my business partner Jalsa, you know, similar. Uh, he, he did go to NJIT, he dropped out, uh, but he's got that entrepreneurial uh, uh, fire in him, and we just kind of figured it out. But um, there's definitely been a few really good nuggets that I've been able to learn and pull away from YPO that has helped us establish you know a, a really good thriving organization. Um, and then on the family front, it's it's been great for my family as well. They love it. Uh, my spouse is very engaged. You know, Sonia is engaged. Uh, my kids love it as well when they get hang out with you know <laughs> your kids as well. Right, that's how they met. Um, and then for me personally, um, you know, the not only the friendships, but you know, being being in an organization where um, you have so many people that are so self driven gives you that fire to really be even more driven. Um, so I think just being a, being in a room um, with with those kind of people really push me to become better me. 
Well, so I, I think what's funny is that, you know, you talk about sort of the formal education or your lack of formal education. But to me, you are one of the most well-educated people I've ever met. I mean, you... I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> uh, uh, the, amount of, the amount of reading you've done, the amount of books, the amount of research, the topics that you know, I mean, to me, it's, there is something to be said about that you've, you've, you've sought it on your own and you've done it your own way. And I mean, to anyone listening, it really is an extraordinary, um, again, you, you are, you've read more books than I don't think, I, than I could ever read in a lifetime. And, well, and from that, I think it's really helped you grow as a person, but then obviously in, in business. Yeah. And, and I, I, I started reading later in life. Um, and by that, I mean, only after I joined YPO, I really, <laughs> I really started reading. So up until I joined YPO, the only book I had ran, read from cover to cover uh, was A Stranger by, by Camus. And I really love that book. <laughs> I read it in one sitting. And that's the only book I ever really read. Um, and once I joined YPO, um, it was really that, that experience that, you know, the old saying, you can't see the forest from the trees. Um, and that's, that's what YPO did to me. It's like, you know, you're, you're so busy in the day to day, you're not looking at the big picture. Um, if you're, if your nose is to the grindstone, you can't really see what you're doing. So YPO did that for me. Um, and you know, I think, uh, uh, Carmine, Carmine Torella, which you know as well, Mm -hmm. um, he's the one that actually, you know, sparked that fire, the, the, the reading, um, and I can say, yes, I haven't looked back since. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> um, it's definitely something that uh, it, it's become an addiction more than a habit um, to just keep reading, keep learning. And I, I enjoy it very much. That's awesome. I love the architecture profession. There are so many wonderful people, so many interesting, innovative and smart folks. And we get access to people that most never even have an opportunity to meet in person. I have worked with Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, John Foley, founder of Peloton, and many more legends. There is another aspect of architects that fascinates me. How do clients view us? How do they work with us? Those that work with architects either have a wonderful experience or a pretty bad one. Let's continue to listen to the lessons they've learned. And now back to the episode. So, so part of what we do uh, here is take a critical look at how architects work uh, with other professionals, such as yourself, and as a subcontractor, contractor. Um, you know, what is your interaction with an architect on a typical job? So, um, we we interact as much with an architect as we do an engineer, and kind of at the same time. Um, once once the job is 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 awarded to. Uh, um, a subcontractor like ourselves, that's when we really started look, putting to, putting the work together, right? Get our smills together, get everything together. Um, and because of the, you know, three decade plus experience we have, we do comb through the plans and try to get ready, try to get ahead of the game um, and and find any conflicts that, that, that we may find in the plans before we get to, before we get to the site. Again, some of the jobs, not some, all the jobs we're doing are pretty large projects. Our sweet spots anywhere between 100 to 200 units. Some of them are three, four, 500 unit projects. Um, so that means at any given day, we'll have anywhere between 30 to 80 guys on site. 
um, you do not want to be on a day where you have 80 people on site working and you dis and you discover that, wait a minute, we got a problem. This doesn't work. <laughs> All right, let's pause. Let's get the design team on the phone and and figure out how to get through this. You're you're losing tons of money by the minute at that point. So we have a pretty robust pre-con team that that really combs through the plans and puts together what we call a print review, uh, which is basically just a, it's an it's an large RFI. That's really what it is. But instead of submitting these individual RFIs that like, you know, 20, 30 different RFIs, we'll put in a print review and have like these, you know, 30, um, 30 or 40 uh, uh, itemized uh, questions or comments. Some of them are questions saying, hey, I don't know if this works. You know, we've seen this done differently somewhere else. What do you think about this idea, right? Some of them are VE, some value engineering opportunities that we might provide for the client. Um, some of them are conflicts. Hey, architect saying this, engineer saying that, which way do we go? Um, and we put this, you know, um, print review together, submit it to the client. And that's kind of where the relationship starts with the with the architect. Um, and, you know, the a lot of times it, it's a really good working relationship. Others, it's not. Um, and it, it becomes difficult at times because some some people out there, okay, some architects out there, um, <laughs> do not listen to their subcontractors or to their, it's not even their, their subcontractors. And I guess, if I may, let me take a step back. Okay. Because I believe there's an inherent problem with the industry, the way it's set up. So um, for the projects that I work on, uh, the owner, the, the, the owner developer uh, is going to hire an architect and then is going to hire an engineer to design the product. Um, they're probably working on these con these conceptual drawings and this this, uh, the, the, this project for about a year until they decide, you know what, let's go look for a general contractor or a construction manager to build this for us. Then they go and put this out to bid to three, four, five different general contractors. These general contractors will put this out to bid to, you know, 10 contractors for each trade, and it's a bidding war all the way through, and somebody's gonna make a mistake along the way, be the little bidder, get it, and then the, the GC is gonna take that little bid, and he's gonna be the little bid, and he's gonna get it, and so on and so forth. Um, but by the time the general contractor gets involved with the project, the project's about a year old already, right? Yeah. The architect has been working with, with, the, with the owner for quite some time on, on these concepts. Um, they probably have design development plans. They have probably have some construction drawings already put together. I mean, it's there's a lot of hours that are built into this project. And I already. guarantee you, by the way, the architect has blown their fee already on that. So they're out of money. Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and I get it. And that's why yeah. the, the model doesn't work. So by this time, you know, the architect is fully committed. You're pot committed. This is these are the plans. You're gonna build it, or good right. luck. Right. <laughs> um, but so the general contractor is stepping in at this point. The general contractor, for the most part, you know, they're 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 manager. They're gonna hire the professionals, the subcontractors, to build the project, whether it be the mason, the framer, the drywaller, the electrician. So those are the guys that are the experts in the. In, in the product, right? Yeah. Um, so by the time the general contractor bids this out and gets everybody involved and awards the project, we're looking a year and a half down the line. Those plans are probably permit set or construction set. That means that the architect, the firm, and the engineer, right, has dedicated over a year and a half and all of their budget, mm -hmm. right, into this project. It's submitted to the township. It's, it's a go. And all of a sudden, you finally have the experts looking at the plan saying, guys, we have a problem. 
like this doesn't work here. That's not going to work there. There's a conflict here. This is not how it's supposed to be done. Um, and now, you know, we the which I understand now, the architect is taking calls from this subcontractor saying, hey, your plans are screwed up. This is not going to work. Well, it's the last thing you want to hear, right? You've blown your budget. You're done. You've been working this for a year and a half. You're probably bored of yeah. the project already. Yeah. You're moved on to five other projects. <laughs> exactly. You've moved on. It's like, <laughs> I, and, and a lot of times you see that frustration and the architects don't give the subcontractors the time of day. Like yeah. plans and specs, follow the plans. You know, hey, we have this question. What if we did this differently? Follow the plans. And we get that a lot. Um, and and I think there's an opportunity more so for the owner, the developer, um, if if the, the process was a little different, right? If you bring in the experts um, a little bit earlier um, yeah. to collaborate with the architect. Um, and on, on a lot of projects, on a lot of projects with some of the clients that um, we've been working with for a long time, we do that. Right, and it's a great experience when you know we're at the table early on. Hey, we have schematics. You know, we want to sit down and talk about what's really going on in the market now. Um, and it's a great experience. And we're we're we love sitting at the table when there's really you know, drawings are on a paper napkin. It's like, hey, what are we doing here? And then we can say, hey, these are the great things that we're seeing out there. Because as a subcontractor, the benefit to us is that we see all different kind of plans, right? all different kinds of drawings, see the good, the bad, and the ugly. So we can definitely come to the table and say, hey, you know what? I've seen this project and these were the details that we used. It worked great. It was amazing. It was easy. It was cost effective. And we can also say, whatever you do, don't do this. Right. We had to do this on a project. It was crazy. It was so expensive. It did, really didn't work. It created these issues for the plumber, for this guy, for that guy. And we can offer that that advice, that, that, uh, that point of view, um, and I just think that there's an opp a big opportunity missed on the owner side, and also on the on the arc on the design team side to be able to you know get the professionals, uh, the guys that are really in there every day doing the work uh, in early to help design the project. Uh, but I think it's more so um, the 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 way that the system is set up, right? Yeah. The way the system is set up puts us at odds from 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 the beginning because by the time I'm starting on the project you guys are done and yeah. you don't want to be bothered leave yeah. me alone I'm on to something else yeah you're absolutely right and 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 for good or for bad it really has to start with the client the client's got to be the one to dictate that process and say hey we're going to do it differently there are there are other processes there's uh, you know IPD there's other delivery methods that when we work in that method they're they're awesome because it is exactly that everyone's at the table from day 1 you know the pricing from a from a, a general contracting point of view is figured out so everyone understands it and then yes there's bidding that happens along the way but it's now based in reality as opposed to this fictitious set and i don't know why architects don't push that more um, I think some of it may just be because they think that, no, they know how to do it and the contractor is just the guy who builds it. Uh, but the reality is if we were to actually listen to the contractor a little bit more, it would make our life a lot easier. And that fee that we've already blown, that eventually we're going to have to go back and redo the drawings, um, we would have made that up along the way tenfold. So it's a, it's a bizarre process. I, I, I totally agree. Do you ever have a hand in selecting the architect when you guys are no. doing this? No. no, no, we we never do. I mean, the the one thing, the one thing we do sometimes do is uh, on the structural engineer. 
um, you know, uh, some of the times you, the architect's already involved, but uh, the owner hasn't selected an engineer. So on that side, you know, we definitely will get involved and say, hey, you know what? This firm does a really good job or that firm does a really good job. Um, we'll get involved in that. And that's another part, right? So because we play on, on, on both worlds, on the wood frame uh, world and on the, the coal form um, world, it, 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 even that so is vastly different because on the wood framed, um, the structural engineer is somebody that is working either for or with the, the architect. Um, either for the architect, for the owner, or directed to the owner with the architect, which causes even more commotion. Sometimes those are those two do not get along, and it's like, come on, guys, get get it together. Um, and by the time we come along, we just have to follow the structural drawings. And even though we have our own way of framing, um, you know, we call it the nomad way, right? So we have our own way of framing. There's some some details that we like using on our projects, and every project we have to kind of RFI is like, hey, we'd like to do this differently, and sometimes. You get that just follow the plans, you know, which is kind of you know I feel like beating my head against the wall. <laughs> but in, in the in the in the cold formed uh, realm, it's different. So the architect will just draw the plans. Um, the framing contractor has to hire the structural engineer to design the uh, the the building, which for me makes sense, right? Um, you want to be able to take control of what you're doing, right? And as long as you hire an engineer and you're responsible for the engineer uh, and the engineer's license and so on and so forth, um, you know, we can kind of take a little more control of the way we do things. Because again, after three decades in the industry, we do have uh, some expertise and we do have some details that we like to follow um, instead of every job we're doing things differently. Um, and that's what we're trying to avoid, Reinvent right? Reinvent the wheel every time. Exactly, yeah. and that's what we're doing. We're reinventing the wheel every time, which it's, it causes more room for mistakes, right? So if you have your crews that you're training day in and day out, okay, this project we frame this way, and that project we frame <laughs> that way, and that project we frame that way. It's it's difficult. It's it's really difficult to get um, you know the the quality of the the, the work um, you know to to a point where you want it when you're doing everything different on every project. So we 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 prefer being in a, in a in a position where this is how we frame. And yes, it's to code and so on and so forth. And everybody knows what we're doing. We'd be a lot more efficient. Um, and a lot better at what we do if that's if that's the way it was set up. So what what is the nomad way of framing if you had to put it in a sentence? Um, so it's more than a sentence. Uh, <laughs> so the nomad way is a little different. So um, we are uh, very cognizant of the environment. Um, one of the things that we do uh, put into perspective is you know what can we do right um what can we do to to to, to chip in um we stick frame all of our projects we do not do um we don't use uh, uh wall panels so wall panels are built in a shop um put on a truck delivered to the job and then then erected um the only the only product we buy already um uh, uh pre-assembled um is the floor components and the roof components because they do have to be assembled um, in a in a factory, um, so what we do uh, in order to uh, be as efficient um, and as efficient for the planet as possible, we we set up shop on site. So we'll bring in condensed packs of lumber. So that means we maximize or we actually we minimize the amount of trucks that it takes to get all the raw materials to the project. Um, and then we we have a cut station on site where we pre-cut everything uh, on the ground before we send it upstairs. Um, 
for multiple reasons. So the reason why we do the condensed packs of lumber is if you do buy wall panels for every truck of condensed packs of lumber, you need five trucks of wall panels. Oh, wow. So that means there'll be five times more trucks on the road, five times more carbon emissions, so on and so forth. Um, and not, not to mention the amount of room you actually need on site to store panels. It's five times more. Right. Yeah. Um, then the second thing we do when we we set up our cut station on site is we prefab as much as we can on site, meaning all the headers, all the cripples, all the blocking, everything we can cut, we cut down below so we can maximize or minimize the amount of waste that we have on the product. If we just put the, the condensed packs of lumber up on the second, third, fourth floor and let our subcontractors go to town, you have an enormous amount of waste. We control that waste on the ground by having our own people doing all the cuts. We have a itemized cut list exactly what we're supposed to cut, you know, and even if we send, for example, a, you know, a 20 foot uh, beam out there, we know we're gonna get, you know, 110, you know, and an eight, and then, you know, a two, whatever it may be. So we have the list already predetermined on every piece that's going out, how we're gonna cut it to maximize the, the length of the wood. Um, so to minimize the amount of garbage that ends up, ends up going to the dump. Um, that's one of the very unique things that we do as a company. Um, but you know, there's there's some there's some specific details um, that 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 we like to follow. Um, specifically, you know, in the corridors, we like to balloon frame the corridors so we can eliminate some of the rim board. Uh, typically, platform framing, you're going to need to use some rim board in the corridors. Um, we like to balloon frame that, and, you know, hang the uh, hang the corridor joist, and that can eliminate a piece of costly uh, rim board. Um, and that's just something that, you know, it provides a lot of value to um, to the customer because yeah. the engineer rim board is pretty costly um, and it, it, it saves it saves on lumber. That's great. So you essentially create your own factory at each site, right? And and basically pre-assemble, which is an interesting idea because all you hear right now is prefab, prefab, prefab. But I never thought of it that way as, yeah, I guess if it's prefabbed, you now have to get all that to site. It's way bigger and you've got to store it there and then you've got to stage it and then you've got to assemble it where you're right. If you bring sort of all, if you bring the factory to the site, you can now recreate that experience with that same level of precision, but you're, you're doing it at, a, at, at your own pace and your own rate, which is, which is pretty awesome. So, so with that, um, you know, how do you, what do you think the opportunities for technology are uh, in your business specifically um, and in your process? So, I mean, every day there's something new out there, right? So, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 uh it's difficult to say uh, what they are um, other than they're they're numerous out there. So, <clears throat> you know, in just in in the sense that we were just talking about this uh, on-site, you know, uh, cut station or mill station or on-site factory. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's uh you know. BIM is, is obviously playing a big role in, in our in our industry, in our sector. Um, and we're actually toying with the ideas of figuring out how we can do the BIM models to be able to create that cut list for us to be able to do that on site. Hmm. Um, so we can, again, maximize um, on every piece of lumber that we buy for the project so we can minimize the amount of waste. Um, the other thing we're trying to do, we're, we're, we're hopefully figuring out here soon is what to do with that waste. Uh, whether it's a technology or not, but I'll I'll mention it now is, um, you know, we're we're just talking to a client um, just last week, trying to figure out what can we do um, so we can recycle this wood. Because at the end of the day, yeah, you're gonna have small cutoffs, so you can't just reuse these small cutoffs. 
what can we do to um, to uh, to re to recycle that wood? Um, one of the thoughts were one of the things we're looking at now to try to really create kind of a, a net zero effect on the project is if these cutoffs were then um, used for the mulching for the project. So everything that gets all the wood, which is a renewable resource, I mean, it, they're crops, they grow just like corn, it takes a lot longer to grow than corn, but that's what it is. Um, and if we can, out of the cutoffs of the wood that we use, if we can mulch it, reuse it on the project and kind of everything stays on a project. So kind of like a, a, a net zero impact that's great. Um, for the project. That's great. Yeah, that's exciting. It, it is, but right now, it look, nobody wants to nobody wants to, wants to, to be bothered that. with it. Like, yeah. ah, what am I gonna do with it? How am I gonna go pick it up? I'm like, come on, let's put our heads together. Let's right. figure it out. Uh, because that wood is end up going to the dump and it's- Well, based on some of the new legislation that may happen, they may be forced to, to ra grapple with this kind of stuff. So. Yes, yes, they may. <laughs> but, but, but again, if, 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 uh, if, if you walk on a construction site and you just look around, you can see the enormous amount of waste that yeah. happens on every single project. Um, it is, it is beyond ridiculous. Um, you know, we personally we just finished building our house, and that's one thing my wife said you know, all the time. You know, as you know, she was stopping by you know every other day during construction projects. Like, what's all this garbage? Why are they throwing that in the garbage? Why are we picking that up? And and you know, for somebody with a uh, I guess a fresh eye, that's exactly what happens. For all of us that are calloused to what we've seen over the last you know decades in the industry, you just kind of like, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, there's a pile of stuff that's going to end up in the garbage, and a pile of that's going to end up in the garbage. But they're all good products. So we, in the industry, need to do a much better job um, on on figuring that out. Because right now we're not. We're just throw in the dumpster. Hey, yep. we need three more dumpsters today. Just throw in the dumpster. Yeah, and, and you, I agree. You, on a job site, a dumpster will be delivered fresh and then an hour later it's full and they're delivering another one and you're like, holy crap. You know, yeah. Think about that, You know how many thousands and thousands of times that happens per day. You know, it's that that's a tremendous amount of waste. Yeah. So, so kind of bringing it all around, um, I like to ask this question. If you had to do it differently as far as your career, uh, what might you have changed? <sighs> Let me see. What would I have changed? Um, I think the only thing I would have changed is be more open to education early on. Um, I think I've, it's kind of a weird say to say, but I've discovered education um, later on in my life. Uh, and I'm only 40, so it's really not that later on in my life. <laughs> uh, but I've discovered education uh, in my mid-30s. Um, if I had given education a shot uh, earlier in life, uh, you know, maybe it would have given me a little bit better edge. Uh, that's kind of the only thing that really comes to mind. Uh, I think I was a pretty good student when I was in high school, but it was, again, and the circumstances were different, right? So, like yeah. I said, I kind of like, you were focused on um, uh, surviving instead of thriving back then. So now I'm I'm thankful to be in a position that I can think about how to thrive instead of survive. Um, and uh, yeah, education. Awesome, that's great. So last thing, kind of um, just a, a quick. You already mentioned the Mongolian travel, so I wanted to ask you real quick about Extreme Makeover. I know you guys had done that. Yep. Um, which uh, I love that show. So, uh, what was that experience like? How did you get on? How did you guys get on that? So, and does it really happen in a week? Oh yeah, yeah. No, it, it's <laughs> it's madness. Um, so we did three 
We did. We we participated in all three uh, extreme makeovers that happened in New Jersey. Um, two of them, we were just kind of like uh, one of the framing contractors, and oh, you come into this, do the first floor, and get out of the way. The other guys will come in. But um, the one we did in Camden, uh, in I think it was '09. Um, that one was a lot of fun. We we did it with a partner, one of our clients at the time, J.S. Havnanian. Um, and we did a 3,000 square foot home in literally seven days. So we had 100 guys and gals. We had 100 people there, um, and we framed a 3,000 square foot home overnight. We started at, uh, it was either like nine o'clock, yeah, nine o'clock at night. That's when the, um, it was uh, the superior wall, so the prefab concrete walls that came in. And again, they do a lot of the stuff, right? On that one, yes, it definitely was prefab wall panels (laughs) and that that kind of stuff. But um, so the the superior walls went in, they were tied in. As soon as they said go, it was like nine o'clock and we just rushed it. Um, By nine o'clock in the morning, we were done. Wow, by, By the time, you know, we were having quote unquote breakfast. Um, they were putting shingles on on the house. Um, it was a lot of fun. It was really a lot of fun. Um, the, you know, the 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 cool thing is, you know, the cast kind of stays away. They're really in their in their trailers, <laughs> and they know, okay, Ty's coming out. Everybody, stop! Give him the handsaw, and he's like, hey, okay, get out of the way, keep going. <laughs> um, so it was it was it was a whole lot of fun. I do remember paying a visit to the uh, medical tent because you know we were all. I mean, Red Bull was one of the sponsors, and yeah, that's part of the you know why we kind of keep going, right? <laughs> so after three or four Red Bulls in, and you know, I'm 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 walking um, I'm walking on the second floor, getting everything ready before we deck it, and I was like, I don't feel so good. <laughs> it's like, so I had to pivot to the medical tent, but uh, everything went went well. Now, it was it was really rewarding experience, um, and yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. And yes, it de- definitely gets done in seven days. That's insane. I, I thought that was total TV BS, but I guess. Uh, but I guess but it's it takes not... it takes months to in planning. Plan. Yeah, and and I guess <laughs> um, to that effort, right? That that's what could happen, right? If a design team sits down with the professionals and plans ahead. That's the end result. Well said, you know, I love it. That, that's the end result, because that's what we did. We did a ton of planning sessions with a design team, and this is how we're gonna do it, this is how we're gonna do it, and kind of bring it in, and we had you know brainstorming sessions where all the all the trades would get together. Okay, the plumber's like, hey, this is what I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna go here, there, 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 there. I said, wait a minute, you can't do that because of this beam, let me do this instead. And you know, we had all that brainstorming sessions early on, so by the time it was go time, Everybody knew what they were doing. Yeah, that, that it's a really, really good point. It's the, the you know the extreme makeover model really should be the industry uh, the yeah. industry standard. I love yeah. it. Well, listen, Pedro, I could talk to you for hours. Um, I, I I thank you so much for coming here and being the guest here at Bell Works uh, and on the Anti Architect podcast. Um, again, thank you for sharing your story. It's a it's an amazing story um, and wonderful to have you. Well, thank you for having me. Had a great time. Yeah, awesome. So uh, to see and read more about Nomad Framing, you can visit their website, which is uh, www.framethefuture.com. Framingthefuture.com. Sorry, framingthefuture.com. And to book some insane trip to Mongolia, if you ever want to go there, it's what, nomadicexpeditions.com? Yep, and uh, the lodge that we own and operate is uh, threecamelodge.com. Crazy. Award-winning lodge, by the way. Yeah, you got to go on the website and check it out. We could have a whole other podcast about that because yes. that's, that's a whole other uh, story about how that even came about. So, so thank you again and uh, look forward to seeing you again. Thank you.